continuing our break from the book of Romans, even though we had only had a couple of installments in that book, to uh, go to the Gospel of John, please, John chapter 15, uh, to consider a, a text specifically apropos for the day, the celebration of Pentecost today, John chapter 15. There is a there has been a great deal of confusion in the church uh, over the years about the nature and the uh, purpose and the consequence of Pentecost. Uh, some have taught that Pentecost is a, a great marker of, of epochs in the life of God's people, those before living without the Spirit and those since living with the Spirit in their lives. We need only look back to the Old Testament, of course, to see that, uh, in fact, the Spirit was living in the saints of old as he is in us. Others have thought that Pentecost marks a day from which God's people would be known for miraculous gifts, for speaking in tongues and so on. And yet the church has produced spiritual giants, men and women who are undoubtedly Christians in the fullest measure, who have never once uttered a word in a different language than their own or one that they had studied. So what is the significance of Pentecost then? And how, as the title of today's sermon suggests, how can its effects continue into the 21st century? Well, listen carefully now as Jesus himself explains the things that had yet to happen when he was with his disciples in the upper room before his death and resurrection and ascension into heaven. Listen as he greatly comforts them and gently, but also commands them uh, for the days to come, the days when they no longer have him physically with them, but with and in them in a much more marvelous way. But first to prayer. Our Father in heaven, send your spirit now we pray to open our eyes and the ears of our hearts, that we may receive truth, that we may be conformed to it, and understanding it, our Father, live it as well. We thank you that he mightily works, the same who inspired these words originally, now to illumine them to us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's pick up at verse 26. John chapter 15, verse 26. Jesus speaking to his disciples now, but but when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering a service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things, your sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, 
He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father. And you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. The concert hall was dark, was hushed, ready for the great concert pianist to come on stage. As a spotlight fell on the Steinway, a mother in the audience was horrified to find that her young son had made his way onto the stage, was now at the piano bench. He started plunking out with one finger the tune, Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. Paderowski came to the piano and said to the little boy as he realized what was going on, don't quit, keep playing. Paderowski, from behind his, the boy, put his arms around and played beautiful additions to the simple melody that the child was playing. Now, let me be quick to say this also to you, that though I've read that story in several different places over the years, I'm not sure whether it's true. It may just be one of those urban myths. But either way, is it not something of the picture that Jesus draws for the minds and hearts of his disciples here in the upper room? Is this not something of the experience that the disciples would now timid and frightened experience later once their Lord had risen from the dead and ascended into heaven? Jesus was telling them that he was leaving them and they were to be his witnesses. But who were they? Who were they to be his witnesses? I, I'm just a fisherman. I'm nobody. I'm a, I'm a tax collector for crying out loud. Who, who's going to listen to me? Later, Paul, in a letter to the Corinthians, would express it this way. We have this treasure in jars of clay. The jars of clay that we are, yet Jesus sends his disciples, even us, into the world to testify about him. Does he send you alone? Are you on your own as you bear testimony to the world concerning Christ? No, verse 26. Not alone. But when the Helper comes, Jesus says, Whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. There's an important doctrine here that we must have impressed indelibly on our minds as we strive to obey God's commandment to go and to testify about Him to all the nations. Yes, we must bear witness. But testifying about Christ, bearing witness for Christ, must be done by the Holy Spirit. Now, bearing witness or evangelism, we 
sometimes call it. Proclaiming the good news by the Spirit involves a couple of things, at least. First, evangelism by the Spirit is evangelism accomplished by a certain power. As we go and bear witness to the world, bear testimony to the salvation that is in Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, as Paul has said, we go as jars of clay. Now what I ask you is, is more powerless than a jar of clay. There's no power in a jar. There's no glory in a clay jar. There's no ability in a clay jar. It's just a clay jar. That's what you and I are. As we stand before a dying world pointing the way to Christ, we're clay jars. We're powerless. Unimpressive, really, in and of ourselves. We're like that little boy plunking out the tune, the simple tune, the, the monophonic witness to Christ. Foolishness. Foolishness, Paul calls it, to a world that is wise in its own eyes. But the Spirit, you see, takes our little monophony and turns it into a symphony. As he wraps his arms around us and bears witness through us to the hearts of unbelievers concerning Christ. That's the power of our evangelism, of our witness, our testifying to Christ. It comes not from us. How could it? Look at us. Powerless. Unimpressive. The certain power of our evangelistic efforts comes not from us at all. It comes from the Spirit. The Spirit at work in us. Several years ago, one of you gave me a wonderful book on the importance of ministry empowered by the Holy Spirit. And it reminds me that if there will ever be any power at all in the pulpit, it must be the power of the Spirit, and only of the Spirit. Charles Spurgeon knew this well, and so when he ascended into the pulpit to preach God's Word, with every step he said to himself, I believe in the Holy Ghost. I believe in the Holy Ghost. And Spurgeon knew well the lesson the Lord here teaches about preaching the gospel to unbelievers. He knew that he himself could only plunk out the tune of the gospel at the keyboard. But all oh, the power if the Holy Spirit adds his own witness. Here is Spurgeon himself. I shall not attempt to teach a tiger the virtues of vegetarianism. But I shall as hopefully attempt that task as I would try to convince an unregenerate man of the truths revealed by God concerning sin 
and righteousness and judgment to come. These spiritual truths are repugnant to carnal men. And the carnal mind cannot receive the things of God. Gospel truth is diametrically opposed to the fallen nature. And if I have not a power much stronger than that which lies in moral suasion or in my own explanations and arguments, I have undertaken a task in which I am sure of defeat. Except the Lord endow us with power from on high, our labor must be in vain. And our hopes must end in disappointment. Christians, the same principle applies to your everyday evangelism, to your neighbors, to your friends, to those around you, to the stranger. While speaking to them about the gospel, you must bear witness by the power of the Holy Spirit. Not your own power, but the power of God. Second, witnessing or evangelism by the Spirit is evangelism filled with a specific content. And Jesus goes on to tell us the content of true Spirit-filled witnessing in three parts. Evangelism done by the Spirit convicts the world, verse 8, it convicts the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Now take careful note of this. This is the first test of spirit-filled witnessing according to Jesus. It is this. Does your witnessing convict the world concerning sin? True and faithful evangelism brings a sinner to the knowledge of his sin, that he is helpless in his sin, that his foremost problem, the main problem he has in all the universe is that he is Sinful before the thrice holy God. The second part is the conviction of righteousness, the conviction that he is unrighteous before God and he must be made righteous by a righteousness that comes only from Jesus Christ, only as a free gift, a credit, if you will, imputed or placed upon his account, independent of anything. He can do, apart from any good works, apart from any merit whatsoever on his own part. The third conviction has to do with the judgment to come, which looming on the horizon makes the sinner constantly cognitive of his sin, of Christ's righteousness, the robes of Christ's righteousness that must be wrapped around him, in which he must be dressed if he will pass through the judgment to eternal life and not to eternal death. Now, to you, all of this makes sense, sounds like common sense to you. Of course, you must be convicted of sin, of his need of righteousness to pass through the judgment, you say. But that is no longer common sense among many of those who call themselves Evangelicals today. If you have done any witnessing, if you have borne testimony to Christ at all, you know personally the temptation to leave those 
those less pleasant parts, those, those uncomfortable parts, out of the message. You know the temptation to leave sin and judgment and that sort of thing out, out of the conversation. Who really wants to tell someone that they're sinful, that, they're, that their number one problem is that they're sinful to the core and helpless to do anything about it, to raise a finger, to change it. That that sin, what is more, that sin will ultimately exclude them from everlasting life at the judgment unless someone else take up in their place for them. We all know the temptation to leave that sleeping dog lie. It is a temptation, alas, to which many churches have largely succumbed. We, the church, sound more and more like the world these days than we do like the head of the church, Jesus Christ. Too quickly and too willingly, we, we look, for instance, at the recent shooting sprees in our own country. Like the world, we're quick to blame the shooter's childhoods or the type of parents they had or the, the upbringing they had or the entertainment they watch. If only they could have gotten some counseling. If only they could have received some therapy, some treatment, some drugs. Brothers and sisters, the fundamental problem is none of those things. It is sin. Will the church rise up and call a spade a spade? Oh, the temptation to sweep sin under the rug. So great it is. C.S. Lewis anticipated years ago that what we would have in the church is not straight up Christianity, but what he called Christianity and water. Add water and the liquor isn't nearly so powerful. Same with Christianity. What did C.S. Lewis mean? He writes, Christianity and water is the view which simply says that there is a good God in heaven and everything's all right, leaving out the difficult and terrible doctrines about sin and hell and the devil and redemption. That... That is the point to which so much of the evangelical church has come today. Sometime back, I was witnessing to a lady in Chicago. Her name is Sandy. She'd grown up in the Roman Catholic Church, but she had rejected that religion and now attends a Protestant, or at that time attended a Protestant church. I was explaining the gospel to Sandy, witnessing to her by the Spirit, I trust. And I told her, now, Sandy, we've broken the law. You've, you've broken the law. I've broken the law at, at one point. So we've broken it at every point, says the Scripture. And so we stand fully sinful and condemned before God. You know what Sandy said to me in reply? You sound like a Roman Catholic. Think about that. 
Why did I sound to her like a Roman Catholic? Sandy is attending or was attending Protestant churches. Why didn't she say to me, you know what, you sound like every other Protestant I hear? For the simple reason that Protestants talk less and less like that anymore. Sin? We can't talk about sin. Righteousness? Judgment? Those things so integral to Jesus' vocabulary are disappearing from the jargon of the church, at least in our day and in our place. Christianity and water is flowing from too many pulpits today, and according to the scripture, like pulpit, like pew. Watered-down Christianity creates watered-down evangelism. A.W. Tozer laid his finger right on this relationship a generation ago when he wrote this, quote, Christianity today is man-centered, not God-centered. God is made to wait patiently, even respectfully, on the whims of men. The image of God currently popular is that of a distracted father struggling in broken-hearted desperation to get people to accept the Savior of whom they feel no need and whom they have very little interest. To persuade these self-sufficient souls to respond to his generous offers, God will do almost anything, even using salesmanship methods and, and talking down to them in the chummiest way possible. This view of things, of course, is a kind of Religious romanticism, which, while it often uses flattering and sometimes embarrassing terms in the praise of God, manages nevertheless to make man the star of the show. See, Christians, when we fail, Ourselves to make the doctrines of sin and righteousness and judgment pressing matters in our own thinking, in our own hearts and consciences and worship, then we fail to make them the center of our evangelism. And when we do that, we are playing a different tune than the Holy Spirit. But when in our witness bearing we make these matters, sin, righteousness, and judgment, and with them Christ, the melody, the Spirit of God reaches around us, as it were, and plays in perfect harmony. That's how Pentecost continues in the 21st century, in our evangelism, when we remain true to the fundamental doctrines of the Scripture the Holy Spirit bears witness with our witness. That is what Pentecost was and is all about. Pentecost was a missions. It was an evangelism event. But play another tune, a giddy, lighter tune of your own making, and the music becomes confused and distorted. Play something to make us feel good about ourselves. 
That's what the world demands and wanting to please, wanting to comfort and not convict. We adjust the tune of the gospel. We just tweak it a little bit here and there. Keep a few of the notes, of course, the brighter ones. Who doesn't, who wants to play the dark notes after all these little matters of sin and righteousness and and judgment? Just talk to them about Jesus. But what sense does comfort make if there is not first conviction? What good is the good news unless you know the bad? Imagine you're in the doctor's office and he's tested you for cancer. He comes back into the room, his chart tells him, the tests all show you're loaded with cancer. And he sits in front of you, you wait on the edge of the examining table, and he looks you right in the face. And he flashes you a big smile. He says, you know what? You're a great patient. I really like you. And the good news is, some jumping jacks in the morning ought to fix you right up. And aspirin and call me tomorrow. The glaring question, of course, is what needs to be fixed? If there isn't a problem, then there's no urgency to fix it. And how bad could it really be if a few spiritual calisthenics will do the job? If we don't get the bad news, the good news makes no sense. Tell the world and our friends in it the good news Jesus saves without telling them the bad that they are desperately in need of his salvation and lost without it is to treat their open gash with a band-aid. To give comfort before conviction is no longer witnessing by the Holy Spirit. Quite frankly, it's no longer witnessing at all. Now that temptation to issue comfort instead of conviction, I confess, begins with ministers. In Jeremiah's day, the church's pastors, from prophet to priest, were rebuked precisely for healing the wound of God's people lightly by saying, you remember their message? Peace, peace when there is no peace. And it has been the temptation of every pastor since. Charles Spurgeon again from one of his sermons. Oh, if I could lay down nothing but the comforts of the gospel, you would fly to them as flies do to honey. When you come to be ill, you send for the clergyman. Ah, you want your minister then to come and give you some consoling words. But if he be an honest man, he will not give some of you a particle of consolation. He will not commence pouring oil when the knife would be better. I want to make a man feel his sins before I dare tell him anything about Christ. I want to probe into his soul and make him feel that he is lost before I tell him anything about the purchase blessing. Have you had conviction 
of sin? Have you ever felt your guilt before God? Have your souls been humbled at Jesus' feet? And have you been made to look at Calvary alone? That is to Christ for your refuge. If not, you have no right to consolation. Do not take an atom of it. The Spirit is a convincer, someone who convicts, that is, before he is a comforter, and you must have the other operations of the Holy Spirit before you can derive anything from this. Or as a personal hero of mine, Robert Murray McShane once preached to his congregation about the Holy Spirit, even he, all wise, almighty, all gentle and loving though he be, cannot persuade a poor, sinful heart to embrace the Savior without first opening up his wounds and convincing him that he is lost. Now, this is Jesus' idea. We don't make these things up. It was, teaches, it was Jesus' teaching. It was the final marching orders he gave to us before going to the cross. It was his last command before ascending into heaven. Go, make disciples of all nations, and obey we must. But we must do Jesus' work, Jesus' way. Bearing witness to Christ, we plunk out the monophonic tune and watch as the Spirit, by His power, reaches around and causes the gospel to transform the unbelieving heart with the harmony of heaven. And remember this, the very first sermon after Pentecost at Pentecost, began with the heart-cutting news that this Jesus, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But that same sermon ended with 3,000 baptized and added to the kingdom that day. Your job, Christians, is to proclaim it faithfully. His is to apply it. Tell the world without fear of sin, of righteousness, of judgment. Make it your living to do so. That convicted of their need, they may also be truly comforted in their Savior who died for them. Even Jesus Christ. Amen.